boys and ghouls. And welcome to our December episode, where we are giving the gift of horror. In this episode, wrapped in a bow, Cat will bestow upon Marshall a movie that she loves, but that he had never seen. 1994's Brain Scan. Then, tied up with string, Marshall will give the gift that keeps on giving by having Cat finally watch the Joe Dante horror comedy The Burbs from 1989. So, find that special something for that perfect someone. Stuff it in a box. Give till it hurts. And celebrate. Boys and Ghouls, episode 66. The return of Trading Terrors. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell. A transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing like to Europe and like generations and generations back because there's all this documentation um you know draft cards some of that's just paperwork right but what I'm saying your people didn't leave a trail exactly my as he started trying to build mine he's like what are your grandparents names and I start and there's just not a lot of stuff there because my people are like when you go back far enough they're Native Americans and hill people who were like oh, yeah. weren't documented they, they didn't have birth certificates there's not a whole whereas Alec has like a wells that's like generations deep like you can trace that name back and the craziest thing is he had like his great grandfather or something had like a World War One draft card and it was on the web Website and it was Alex's handwriting. It was so spooky. That's pretty cool. And he ha- was having a moment, and he doesn't get this way. But I was like, "What is going on with you?" And he's like, "You have to look at this." He was spooked, and he was like, "This is my handwriting." He's like, "I've never met this human being, and my handwriting looks like his handwriting." And I'm like, "Whoa!" And it really does. Kind of spooky. Hey, let's make that our spooky gap. Okay, moving on. Speaking of spooky. <laughs> Uh, do you have Spooky Gap? I have a little story. I've had a pretty light month. <clears throat> Allow me to spook you. Okay, thank you. So, I've got a job. Look at me! Not to brag. <laughs> Not to brag, but I'm gainfully employed. And a couple of weeks ago, I was at work late by myself. The building I'm in is... Uh, Wait, let's see. You work in a mortuary or some kind of a (laughs) medical examiner's office? Mm, Sadly, it's just a corporate office building. Oh, okay. On the Sunset Strip, which is very haunted by the ghosts of rock stars past. But my building is, I guess, nine or ten stories. I'm on the eighth floor. 
And on my floor, there's office spaces. There's like three or four suites. There have been a couple of really late nights over the last few months. And I happened to be there by myself at like 7.30 or 8. And the bathroom is in the hallway. I have to take a key to go to the bathroom. And I have to walk by the bank of elevators to go to the bathroom. So I was getting ready to leave. I took the bathroom key, went you know, by my hallway, spooky, alone. Um, go to the bathroom. I come out and I'm headed back into, I approach the doorway to our office suite, which is right across from the elevators. And I hear, boom, eighth floor opened up. Nobody on it. Nothing to nobody. Stays open for three or four seconds like it does and then closes again. There's got to be a logical explanation. A ghost? None more than a, a ghost. <laughs> a, must be a ghost. Because the thing is, these elevators are not motion sensor. They're not motion activated. The button wasn't pressed. It's not like someone had walked by and pressed a button and then decided to go back to their office. The, the possibility that somebody meant to hit seven but accidentally hit eight and got off at seven? I suppose. There's no science to support that. I didn't see them, so it must not have been a possibility. Um, just kidding. All right. Of course, Th- that's, it could have That's been. good and spooky. No, I actually have a memory. My mom was telling me, like, about an old family friend. She's like, well, the last time I saw her was in this building. I was like, oh, I remember. Because you sent me and my cousin out in the hallway to play, and the elevator kept stopping on that floor. And we were convinced, it was ghosts. And it was. Couldn't have not been ghosts. Couldn't have not. So there you go. Um, hey, it was Thanksgiving. Uh, we really, I'm not going to say burned ourselves out doing spooky things during Halloween, but uh, we put off non-spooky things so we could do spooky things. Yes. During the month of Halloween. So November is really just our catch-up time for responsibilities. For sure. Non-spooky responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, join us in our next podcast. I think this was some fine spooky gap. I was like so sure. I was like, I must have done something, but like. I mean, I, I wandered around Holy Cross Cemetery for like 20 minutes before it closed. Nice. I was looking for um, Culver City. Oh, I've never been there. I was coming back from the airport. Is there anyone? Did you Google anybody while you were there? Is anyone important? Tons. Yeah. I'd already been to Bailey's Ghost's grave. As you said to me when we went to Westwood Cemetery, you said, this is positively chock-a-block full of celebrities. And I'd never heard that phrase before. Now I use it all the time. It probably has as many as Westwood. Wow. Spread out over like... Three miles or something. Got it. So, uh, Bay Lugosi's there, and I've been to his grave before, and I only had like 20 minutes till they closed. I actually just like ducked out of a traffic jam and been like, hey, it's a Holy Cross Cemetery. Great way to kill some time. I love ducking into a cemetery right before it closes. I've done that many times. I almost got locked into Hollywood forever one time. Wow. Yeah, it was great. But um, Kat Day, her grandfather, Dennis Day. Oh, uh-huh. Is in there, and the internet from, from our favorite episode of Jack Benny, right? And many other things. I've heard him and, and on many a other bunch episodes of, radio. of Jack Benny. Many other episodes of Jack Benny, both television and on the radio, because I've listened to episodes. Yes. Yeah. The internet was like Section W, Tier Fifty Three, Row Thirty Seven, and I'm like, got it, got it. Where'd he go? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just stomping around Section W. For like 20 minutes, and I'm yeah. like, well, the sun's gone down. You I, really have to have a, a little more time. I gotta but get I out of applaud here. applaud your spontaneity. Yeah. And if I go again, I'll find John Candy while I'm at it. He's there, mm. too. Wow. Yeah. I might throw that in. Yeah. See? Our cup runneth over. With spookery. I know a 
just what you want for Christmas But I don't know how to wrap it, dear It's something that you always wanted You asked me for it all last year I've tried so hard to wrap it But it's shaped unorthodox I tried it in a carton Even tried it in a box I know just what you want for Christmas But I don't know how to wrap it, dear Oh, hey, Kat. Hi, Marshall. Hello. This is our December episode, and it feels right that we are giving each other gifts. The gift of horror films. <laughs> yes. We are trading terrors, once again, in that you have given me the gift of brain scan, 1994. <laughs> I can't believe this moment's finally here. And I have given you the gift of the burbs. Thank you. Uh, because... You love Brain Scan, but I've never seen it. Yep. And when you found it out, you almost, like, blew a fuse. I almost threw this chair across your room in excitement. In excitement. Excitement. And I'd never seen The Burbs. A movie which I enjoy very much. So, let's unwrap your present to me first. <laughs> I like the look on your face right now. I, By the way... So, as, I, as I'm trying to stick to the concept? We haven't talked about no I just like well the way I'm interpreting it is because I'm actually on pins and needles wondering how you feel about this movie because we have not talked at all I've texted you and been like the burbs is amazing uh, or maybe I haven't but I at least tweeted about it but I don't know anything about how you're feeling about brain scan so this is like unwrapping a surprise gift that could be like underwear like not great underwear or it could be like the, the, uh, you the know, socks of, of yeah, or the gift that you're about to give me. And look, don't feel bad if you didn't like it. But you know, it could be also. Anyway, let's just talk about it. Let's talk about it. I can't wait anymore. That look of consternation was not me trying to be diplomatic about brain scan. Oh, phew. But rather me trying to shoehorn in something Christmassy. Yes. About this our December episode. Yes. While neither movie we're covering even touches on Christmas. Right. By the way, if you are in the Christmas spirit, please go back and revisit other Christmas episodes that we've done. We have some really great ones. Including last year's. Yes. So just go back through the feed and find stuff that was released uh, about Christmas. But today. Well, I'll tell you what. Neither of us gave the other one an impersonal gift card. You know, you get a gift card and you're glad to get it. Yep. But it was really the minimum amount of thought on their yeah. part. It's useful, but it's not really special. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, you gave me something very personal to you. I did. Like, you give me brain scan is like the equivalent of like a gift that you made yourself. A hundred percent. It's a huge part of my and childhood. Not in a disappointing way. Not like a, oh, a sweater that I can't return. Mm-hmm. But rather it's like. It's in a way that you now you know me better. Yes. Yes. It's like if you had painted a portrait of not just you, but us. <laughs> Wow, that's really heartwarming. It puts one in the feeling of Christmas. Only because of how you reacted when you found out that I would watch Brain Scan for the first time. You were yeah. just bubbling over. Well, it's because with joy. it's you. You know, if I found out that my dad hadn't seen Brain Scan, well, I know he's not going to, which I'm sure he hasn't. Um, he's seen every Steven Seagal movie, and like he's exposed me to a lot of crazy stuff, and, and I'm very thankful for it. He's the reason I saw Vanishing Point as a teenager. Mm -hmm. But. It wouldn't mean as much to show it to him because it's not really his bag. And sure. do you know what I mean? If you found out your third grade teacher hadn't seen Brain Scan, it wouldn't mean as much 
either, or if like your Uber driver hadn't seen Brain Scan. <laughs> but even if uh, he did on your recommendation, mm-hmm. and yet uh, because I'm the one opposite the mic right here, that's right. That I have now added Brain Scan to my life. Let me ask you: Did you ever see the cover in a video store? I want to say yes because I knew about the movie. Okay. I was misinformed though. I thought it was Eddie Furlong and Mark Hamill. Oh, wow. Which wouldn't be out of line for him to have a part like that. I guess not. But. Where'd you get that from? The real nerdy nerds are already two steps ahead of you, which is that the character of the trickster, Mm -hmm. or he's just trickster. Mm -hmm. The trickster was a character that was in the Flash TV show. Nerd alert! Back in uh, like 1990, and Mark Hamill played a couple of times, I think, during its short run, the trickster. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you weren't too disappointed that it wasn't Mark Hamill. No, because the guy who, the non-Mark Hamill guy. T. Ryder Smith. T. Ryder Smith, who played Trickster, was excellent. I'm so glad to hear you feel that way. Now, there's certain elements that I believe that you responded well to because of the age you were. For sure. And maybe because you were a girl of that age. Maybe. Let's get into it. Okay. Please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Trickster. What was that film you were watching? Death, death, death. Death, death, death. Part two. Oh, Lord. Michael's seen it. Go for it, man. Done it. Played it. Look, I've played them all. And just when he thought he'd die of boredom. Brain scared. The ultimate experience in interactive terror. Never leave home without it. <laughs> You're in the game, man. You're in control. You must think like a killer. Cover up any clues. Leave no witnesses, no evidence. A challenge he can't resist. It was so real. It was sick. See, I told you, man. I told you it would blow your mind. A game he can't escape. There was a grisly murder in the quiet suburban town of Mountview today. So you did it. What was on that disc? It's not a game anymore. Hamilton and Hayden. It's real. So this movie came out in 1994. Yes. So whenever it would have hit video stores, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw it when I was 11. That movie has warped my fragile little mind. I definitely saw this when I was probably too young to see it. So it it really kind of imprinted on me at a... A time. So if you're listening and you haven't seen the movie, it came out in 1994. It stars Edward Furlong as... Do you, do you want to explain? Well, he's a horror fan. And... Yeah. A teenager. Who has seen all the movies and played all the games, which I don't know how many there were at the time. But uh, now CD-ROM games are the thing. And he's a real techie kid. He's got a whole setup in his room, so he would yep. know. He's played all the games. Played them all. Um, seen it all. He reads Fangoria. He runs the horror club in his school, and he's fairly isolated. And he shows mild interest in this game, and then it just shows up. It's called Brain Scan. Brain Scan. And his, his buddy, it's... who's also into horror stuff, saw an ad for it in Fango and was like, it's supposed to be crazy. And he's like, yeah, interesting. From Go, we, we see some like weird imagery and some flashback stuff. And as soon as the dream whatever is over, immediately he wakes up to his friend going like, hey, there's this new thing called Brain Scan. He's like calling him up just to tell him about it. And then he is just as immediately kind of blasé about it. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I've done it all. And it's supposed to be a game that 
is more real than anything else, and it makes you inside the mind of a killer. It's like the ultimate interactive terror. And it walks you through what it's like to be a killer. Yeah. Which, if it was the ultimate in terror, wouldn't it walk you through what it's like to be a victim? One would think. Not saying it's a perfect film. (laughs) (laughs) But after a week of musing over this movie, that that just occurred to me. Yeah. And then it turns out, it was real! Because, like, a guy... Was yeah, he, murdered, he plays and the there's first a foot disc. in the freezer. Yeah, he plays the first disc. He he murders someone, and he's like, "Whoa, that was intense!" And then sees on the news that the guy that he murdered in the game was actually murdered. Yeah. Now, just as he's having second thoughts about, well, he certainly doesn't want to play the game anymore. That's for sure. From out of the TV comes Trickster. Yep. Who is? You can only describe him by comparing him to other things. Totally. I've heard him compared to. Drop Dead Fred, mm-hmm. but like evil. Sure. Beetlejuice, kind of. Okay. Little Freddy Kruegery. Yep. Actually, funny Freddy. Yeah. yeah, the funnier Freddy. And by the way, the like disparaging reviews, of which there are many, will make these comparisons in a, well, he's just a bad ripoff of these things, which I disagree with. But. And some people said the Howie Mandel character from Little Monsters. Oh my God. That movie was also a huge part of my childhood. Maurice, by the way, is the name of the character in Little Monsters. Okay, who killed that man? And what's happened? You were there, Michael. You know exactly what you did. So Trickster comes out of the game. And cajoles and convinces him for the rest of the film that he must go forward with the game. First with like, but there was a witness, and you'll go to jail for the rest of your life if you don't play the game. Play the second disc. And then it's like, well, there was another witness. There was a clue. Yeah, clue. He's got to cover up the clues. And then we kind of like leave the main concept a little bit, just because he doesn't seem to be... At first it's like, I don't remember doing that. I didn't leave this chair. And it's like, oh, but you did. And then... He's just going out and covering up clues just as himself, but yeah. and yet somehow he's still playing the game. Yeah, there's some inconsistencies there, yeah. for sure. It culminates in a well-done bit of special effects and a nice-ish concept of him merging with Trickster, so Eddie Furlong, not even in one particular way. First, they're just sort of like combining like the thing, mm-hmm. like melds onto you, but then it's kind of more of a light show, but then he's just sort of being swallowed. By Trickster, his mouth gets really big. This is after Trickster's like, I'm you, you know? Yes, that didn't really go very it, far. It doesn't make sense. No. Um, Except for, I suppose you can make the argument that the game is supposed to be delving into your subconscious and create. So, like, the idea is that he's created this character. Sure, out of his so own he mind. can kill a complete stranger. I know, right? And then, do you want to go all the way to the end here in this summer? Yeah. All right, spoiler right now. Here it comes. Folks. You've had since 94. No! So a cop comes in and shoots him. He's there about to kill, like, the girl that he really likes because she's been a witness to, like, his third crime. Mm-hmm. Because killing his next-door neighbor isn't going to make him look more suspicious. Uh-huh. Now the trickster has sort of taken him over. He's a little bit of an internal battle just in time to get shot by the... Homicide detective. Yeah, I would just... I wasn't going to say too good for this movie... But de- Frank Langella, de- definitely a bit of a get. One hundred percent. It's okay, okay to say that he is incredible. Yes, Frank Langella, who's like, what the, like hell the cop. He, yeah, it's like what the hell is he doing in this movie? Right. It's part of what I love about it. Puts a couple of bullets into him, and then oh, he wakes up. And not only is he playing the game, but he's back to the first disc, the very first time he played the game. Yep. 
He's um, in his clothes from then. It's the same night. He's gone back in time. The, the party across never, the street is yeah, still going on. He never left. He never killed some random guy or his best friend. So all the consequences have been erased. And he goes... It was all a game. And the game is instructing him, here are some relaxation techniques. You've just experienced brain scan. Take a deep breath. And he's like, relaxation techniques! And starts throwing things all over the room. He wrecks his computer. Yeah. Which has sort of been his crutch, you might say, because for a guy who runs a club in school, he's otherwise quite isolated from the rest of his peers. Yeah. But now, he's ready to go join that party. Yeah. And go talk to the girl. He's, like, not afraid anymore. Yeah. I'm glad that just by virtue of having gone through an adventure that has nothing to do with a relationship, does the girl not just jump on him? You you know what I mean? Yes. Sure. So often in movies, the best they can say is like, well, he's got more confidence now. Yeah. Which, okay. And they say it's all confidence. But too often in movies, well, it's one thing when two people go through the same adventure. You can, and it bonds them, and, it bonds and they become them. kind of in love from that. Yeah, yeah like you, the end of Speed. Let's say. <laughs> or I always think about, you've seen all the Seagal movies, apparently. Many of them. At the end of Under Siege, where he just starts like kissing the girl who popped out of the cake, uh, Erica Laniac. Uh-huh. I just expect her to go like, hold on, hold on, I've, I've got a boyfriend. <laughs> I realize we just went through uh, right. some real uh, battles here. Right. Um, but what you're bringing up is because at but, the end of Brain Scan, he's like, will you go out with me? And she's like, maybe. Yeah. And yeah, he's like, great. The best he can get is a maybe. Yeah. And he's happy with that. He's fine with it. He's yeah. like, not no. It's a maybe. It's the asking that's important. Totally. Yeah. He's really grown through this process of brutally murdering people. Yes. A weaker film would have just had a go like, yes. I thought you'd never ask. Who killed that man? What was on that disc? The murder, what else? You know, for a minute there, I didn't think you'd go through with it. When he got up and started dancing around the room. Classic. What do you think Trickster is? I I do think Trickster, I mean, certainly you could make the argument a lot of people, man, I was reading some scathing reviews online. You know, people make the the argument that he was just an attempt at like a Freddy or a some kind yeah. of a character well, like that. But yes, that was like... within the logic of the film, which, by the way, I think the film tried to have its cake and eat it, too, when it came to Trickster. Yeah. It's like, well, he's this and this and this, even though they contradict themselves. Mm-hmm. They're just one line where he's like, how'd you get here? In the usual way, you called me. That's uh, how it always happens. That's how it always happens. He didn't go so far as to say, like, for thousands of years or, any, or anything like that. But if he had turned around and said, like, I am Puck mm-hmm. or Pan, the mischief god, or if he said, I am Loki or any of those mm-hmm. from that Pantheon, or just straight up like, I'm a demon or I'm the devil. Right. I would have bought it. Mm-hmm. I would have mm-hmm. bought that they were trying to do it anyways. Sure. Totally. But they never went down any of those roads. From the top of the charts to the space in your heart. He seems to be sort of all id. Yeah, he's like eating raw chicken. Yeah, it's, it's like having Alf in your house. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. And he's just super hyper. Best illustrated. When he starts going through a CD collection, he's like, no, no, don't you have anything good? <laughs> then he, he pulls out a CD and he's like, never leave home without it. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be like one of the crazy, like, like his stereo is going to start melting or something. 
or bleeding because he's got some kind of demon CD. And then it turns out it's Primus. Primus. He yeah. just starts playing Primus, <laughs> but then just starts like bouncing around the room and like air guitaring to it. Yeah. So it's like, great, you, you've invoked Polly Shore. I read a lot of people kind of giving this guy flack for his performance and just thinking that his whole character is ill-advised and ill-executed, and I couldn't disagree more. And some stuff doesn't age well when you watch it, and certainly there are parts of this film that haven't. But I do think that this actor, who was a stage actor, they mm. plucked him. You know, it's kind of like, I think he had, like, classical training, like Robert England had class. Look, I'm not comparing. I'm just saying. Go ahead and do it. If he had gotten sequels, he'd be a contemporary of of Robert England's sure. Freddy Krueger. And if not Krueger... Wishmaster. Totally. I looked up, there's been like four Wishmasters, there's been like seven leprechauns, Yeah. but there's been only one brain scan. I think Tomb Raider Smith got shafted, man. This doesn't make any sense. Doesn't have to make sense. All these horror movies you watch, does death, death, death make sense? No, it's not about sense, it's about death, death, death. I didn't kill the man, I didn't even know him! Uh, So the star of the film, one Edward Furlong. Mm Mm-hmm. Not too long after Terminator 2, had he done Pet Cemetery 2 by this point? I don't know. Still, he was hot property mm-hmm. because... Yeah, he was. To T- young me, he was. That's where I was going with this. <laughs> yes, Marshall, I had a crush on him. Okay. I did, definitely. Now, you just liked seeing him in these adventures, or did it get to the point where like, you were kind of like, was he ever a surrogate for you? A horror fan cat, young horror fan cat. I don't think I identified, like, I don't think that was, like, the majority of my identity at that point. It was just, some of it was like, whoa, he's got a cool, like, he's got the whole attic to himself, and he's got he this really does. cool setup. And He had, like, these really high-tech computers set up, but the most impressive part was that he had a refrigerator in his room. A whole full-size refrigerator. N- not just, like, a mini-fridge, not no. like a dorm-style fridge. Like, at some point, because apparently his mom's dead and his dad's always away on business, he went... Take that fridge and drag it up to the attic because I'm not going downstairs for my food anymore. Yeah. And I think some of that magic, too, as a kid watching it was the idea of the parent being away. There's some magic about, like, you've got the run of the house. You can come and go as you please. Like, that's just cool to a kid. Yeah. Um, Him being, like, cute was just another layer of, like, I think I would have enjoyed the film with anyone else in the role, for sure. I mean, I don't think he's very oh, good. that floppy 90s hair. Ugh, that hair. It's just perfect. I love the style in this movie. I love the way Kyle dresses. It's so 90s. It really is. What was the guy's name? Kenny? Kenny. So, hey, Kenny, is it you? No, it's Axl Rose. I was like, well, there it is. The most... the, there's the most 90s thing that happens in Brain Scan. Yeah. I'm saying, no, it's Axl Rose. <laughs> yeah, I, I just... love Kyle. I, he's, he's a really fun character. Kyle was like 25. What? Yeah, whereas Eddie was a forgivable 15. I just realized I've been calling his friend Kenny. I am pretty sure it is Kyle. It just Ladies and gentlemen, you me. can uh, send your emails to boysandghouls at gmail.com. Or find us on Twitter at boysandghouls. Maybe a corrections corner. It just occurred to me, I'm realizing I'm hearing Be, be sure to write Kyle. in all caps. Anyway, I was reading, I think it might have been the director. I saw a quote online where he was like, did you read yeah, what I, I this, read? Apparently he's only said one thing ever about this movie, and it's the only thing that ever gets quoted. Yeah, it's bad. He's like... I practically had to slap him awake every morning. Like, he, I was not that fond of working with him. <laughs> yeah. The adult director, ladies and gentlemen. Yipes. Um, working with a child. Right. 
Yeah. And look, Edward Furlong has had a bit of a colorful last several years, and things are not going well for him. And he's I'm not sure he's uh, still out of the woods. No. And how much of that can be blamed on being a child actor? Quite possibly a bit of it. It's just not an easy road to travel, so. Especially how fast he blew up. He did. He did. Gentlemen, you must control your killing instincts. Proceed with the testimony, please. Proceed. A moment of the tricksters that I find to be his best moment. Ooh. Which is, I think the police are at the door. And so Edward Furlong has to go downstairs and, and deal with that. Oh, I know what you're going to say. And then he's left alone. So the Three Stooges is on the television. And Trickster stops, sits down, and watches them with this expression of concentration, right? Yeah. Another interpretation would have been like, well, if he reacts that way to the slightest stimulus, he's probably going to start bouncing off the walls watching the Three Stooges. But instead, he gets this very contemplative look. Yeah. When looking at the Stooges, like, oh, what are these guys up to? What? Yeah. You think he's about to start taking notes. Yes. Or slow clapping. Yes. Or something. They seem to be cut from the same cloth as Trickster. Please omit the rest of the entertainment and continue. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. We meet Eddie Furlong spying on that girl across the street as she undresses. It's a little pervy. Yeah. It's a lot pervy. You feel that he's a bit of a perv, and then, like, she walks kind of out of frame, like, where he can't see her anymore, and you realize that her undressing was for his benefit. Mm-hmm. She was, like, undressing knowing that he was watching. Yeah. And somehow then, I felt pervy. <laughs> Just for watching that. Yes. You know? Also, it should be noted that he's not spying on her by... And Roger Ebert pointed this out in his review. Yes, Roger Ebert himself reviewed this film. That was his job. Yeah. But I mean, Don't get I, too impressed. I think about him reviewing, like, you know, Schindler's List. Anyway, sure. he talks about the fact that he doesn't, like, use his eyeballs to peep at her through the window. He uses he's like, technology. Yeah, technology, 1994 technology has a camera set up with a monitor. So, like, it's the camera doing the peeping, which is very, I think it's just important. This movie is, like, one of those, like, nebulous techie horror yes. movies of that of that era, so. A descendant of Videodrome, mm-hmm. I'd say. Which... While we're sharing our shame, I've never seen that movie. It didn't affect you because you never watched it. I've seen it. I now realize that I saw it at an age where, and this is like something you do in your 20s, there's just all these great titles out there. Maybe you're working off a list and maybe you're just discovering them on your own. But you're just like, oh, uh, Videodrome. No, I've seen Videodrome. Run Silent, Run Deep. No, I've seen Run Silent, Run Deep. Mm-hmm. For a few dollars more. No, I've seen for a few dollars more. And you're really not taking the time or effort to like absorb these movies. And Videodrome was one of those for me. It was literally on a list of movies. And I saw it and it was just like, no, I have seen Videodrome. I have seen it. I am yes. accomplished. Check. Yeah. And We've like, all done that. It's like, hey, if I stay up to 1.30, I can squeeze in a quick Videodrome. <laughs> I mean, that's not the way to see really any movie. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm all for watching some late night fun. But if you're trying to actually learn something and experience something, and if you want something to have a takeaway, mm-hmm. don't just squeeze it in before bed. Right. You know, have some time for... Uh, for contemplation. Yes. The Videodrome fell victim to that phase for me, so I really should go back and watch it again. Get the Videodrome! Long live the new flesh! And then, the end. 
Oh, are you talking about the post, the nope. dog stuff? <laughs> no, that's Jesus. just out. <laughs> it's so stupid. It doesn't make any There's sense. There's a moment earlier on where the principal disrupts the horror club. Uh, he doesn't like what they're watching, which is like... He says, what's the name of that film? And he goes, death, death, death. And he goes, ugh. And Edward Furlong goes, part two. <laughs> and he oh, says, like, great. if this club is to continue, I will approve every movie and game that you introduce to it. Also, he gets out a little speech about the dangers of, like, horror, which I don't feel the movie ever believed, but was just using as the backdrop mm -hmm. for its yeah. its movie. Which is like, you're going to go out and murder people. Right. Which, particularly during election years, people would bring that up. 94 in particular, Pulp Fiction got a lot of flack mm. from Bob Dole as he ran for president. Wow. Who I think said he'd actually never seen it. But all it was was the most popular movie. And, um, and he knew that people had guns in it and it was violent. Yeah, it had guns, it was violent. But the body count in the movie is like literally eight. Wow. A debatable eight. Right. Depends what you think happened to the gimp. Right. I think the gimp's sleeping. So at the end, Edward Furlong, with his renewed lease on life, now goes to the principal, who's no longer dead, and says, hey, I've got this game for you to approve. He looks for... at it and he's like, brain scan. <laughs> I'm sure I'll enjoy it. Yeah, and then behind him is trickster going like realizes out of thin air he and like him and furlong like share like a knowing nod it's like what did this game do to his brain that now he's having hallucinations in the regular world there's that explanation another is trickster is some sort of benevolent creature who goes around teaching lessons right and making people's lives better are we to believe that trickster really wanted Death and murder and mayhem! Or did he want to just take this lonely young man and teach him a couple lessons to make him a better citizen? Right. It's an interesting thought because in the conversations he has with him, he's like, you need to push through this and I know what you're thinking of. And he brings up his mother and all of the seven. Yeah. Like, it seems as though he's coaching him toward working through some stuff, right? And so, like, that's the benevolent part that you're like, eh? Yeah. Right. But at the end, it's like, why didn't this guy get sequels and... Other things did. Because at the end of the day, the Wishmaster wasn't trying to be your buddy. Neither was Freddy Krueger. Right. Never was Jason. Except in later movies. And the Freddy stuff where he was just being funny didn't work as well. Oh, he might have been funny for his own benefit. But he wasn't like trying to teach you a lesson and be like, now you're going to do a lot better in that job interview. Right. <laughs> now that I've scared the bejesus now out of you, you. Now you've really worked through some of your mommy issues from your mom dying. Yeah. Now you'll be able to be a more productive citizen of society. I'm real happy I've done that. If yeah. you can stand up to Freddy, you can stand up to the fear of public speaking. <laughs> There's none of that. Whereas Trickster was some of that. But fall back on, they were trying to have their cake and eat it, too. Yes. And when you come across something like that, the best you can do is just enjoy the moments, the individual moments, without tying them all together. Yes. And this movie does have some nice individual moments. You can see, I think, I hope, why it really made an impact on me as a kid. Yes. And then there's just that you were a kid at the time. Totally. Which should not be discounted. It's a very important part. Our next movie, The, the Burbs. Yeah. It's, I think, well regarded by adults who were kids when they saw it. It's not who the movie was made for necessarily, but kids are going to see it. They're going to get something out of it that adults probably just learned through other movies or other life experiences. A coworker of mine who I mentioned the Burbs to 
she said that she remembers it being on at a lot of sleepovers when she was a kid. And and to me, yeah, I was like, it's... that makes perfect sense. And when I was watching it for the first time, as this is our holiday horror gift exchange, Marshall, yeah. and uh, you were exposing me to a film I hadn't seen, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, this is... So, of course children would love this movie. Like, it's just the comedy, the direction, the way the camera moves, the things that are happening, like the kooky characters. It, it feels like a live-action cartoon or something. Welcome to Mayfield Place. Morning, Walter! A typical street in the burbs where nothing much ever happened <laughs> until the Klopex moved in. No one goes in, no one comes out. Neighbors from hell. Ray, this is Walter. No! The Burbs. I'm going over the fence, and I'm not coming back till I find a dead body. So The Burbs is a film about a man who decides he's got a vacation, mm -hmm. and he's decided instead of going to the lake... Or... That's always being threatened. Uh-huh. It's like, well, why don't we just go to the lake? Like, that's their out. That's yeah. their um, eject button. Mm-hmm. And yeah. anytime they want to press that go to the lake button, they can. Yeah. Because the whole movie is set on a cul-de-sac. And all they have to do is leave the cul-de-sac. Right. And everything will be, maybe not fine, but their involvement with it will just be done. Mm -hmm. There's nothing tying them to this. But he's decided he wants, damn it, to spend his vacation just relaxing at home. And his wife, played by Carrie Fisher, mm -hmm. is... Kind of convinced he's not really going to do much relaxing. And then we kind of learn of a cast of characters. And by characters, I just mean, like, really big characters who live also, also in this cul-de-sac. On, on the block. And they become aware of and discuss a, f a family who's moved in, who's very mysterious. The house is kind they, of dilapidated. They've been there for a little while, but no one's seen them. No one's seen them. It's just kind of mysterious, and there's a lot of, like... The home has become quite dilapidated, and yeah. the lawn! My God, the lawn! Mm -hmm. Everything else is very well manicured. Looks very yeah. very nice. Your house is painted a nice color. This house has uh, kind of been left to uh, rot. Yep. And not only has it just been left to rot, but there's odd things happening. They Strange see weird noises. noises and lights coming from the basement late at night. Strange happenings. And Tom Hanks' character and the other neighbors have gotten into the habit of spying, looking, postulating what could it be. Until one day they notice that um, with this crotchety old man neighbor of theirs has disappeared. Walter. They don't know where Walter's gone, but his dog's still there. And they begin to think, like, maybe these weirdos snatched him. That they're so weird. They're so weird. That they've used him as a human sacrifice. Right. There's, maybe they're Satanists. And this escalates. The rest of the movie is really yes. the escalation upon the escalation until the finale. Yes. Of them going deeper into their own paranoia yeah. over these guys and being given just enough encouragement to keep going and go on to the next level. Of involving themselves with the Klopex. Yes. That's the name of the family. That's the name of the family. Last week when I was up on the roof with my telescope, I saw them in their backyard. What were they doing, honey? Digging. Kind of like grave diggers? Maybe. All right, that's enough of this conversation. I want to mention that maybe you've told me that this movie means a lot to you, but while I was watching it, had the experience of going, holy cow, there's like a couple of clips from this movie that are in our opening theme. Yes. <laughs> of Boys and Ghouls. And I was like, wow, 
either these were just great clips that were chosen because they were good clips to use in an opening theme, or Marshall very carefully selected every opening theme clip and selected a few from the Burbs because he really likes this film. You can talk to me about which which option that is. Namely, I'm thinking of that his neighbors say there's two. He says zombies, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. And then what's the other one? He doesn't mention zombies. He says psychos, fanatics, yes. murderers. No, sorry, I quoted the, our own our opening theme incorrectly. <laughs> the other one was from a Night of the Creeps. Uh huh. But the two from the Burbs. He says that, and that's from the end mm-hmm. when he's like being interviewed. Mm-hmm. And the other one, like. I want to kill everyone. Satan is good. Satan, Satan is, is our my pal. pal. Yeah. Uh, same. It blew my mind when I was watching the movie. I was like, oh my God. Because you've heard it like a million times. A million times. Because I'm not only the, one of the, the character of co-hosts, art. but I'm avid listener of Boys and Girls. <laughs> the instigator character. Mm-hmm. The one who really eggs on the Tom Hanks character yes. into the next bit of foolishness. All the worse because in the end it, he was proven right. <laughs> oh. Why the burbs? I'll tell you why. This is separate from the burbs itself, but more just to like if you're planning on putting together a nice uh, collection of sound bites. It's because I was finding that most horror movies, by the time they come to talk about what's actually happening, first they won't even mention, it. they won't even say the word vampire. And then when they're actually talking about what's happening, it's either being like screamed or whispered. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to find just like a conversational tone mm-hmm. of people mentioning these things. And I didn't find much of it outside of horror comedies. Right. From Dust Till Dawn. From Dust Till Dawn, Twilight's on the what movie. What we're dealing with is vampires. Very mm-hmm. conversational. Night of the Creeps. Mm-hmm. American Werewolf in London. While I adore all of these films, and as we've time has gone on, they've become the closest to our sensibility, you might say, between sure. the two of us at least. Yeah. Also, just to find people speaking... Loudly and clearly <laughs> about monsters and psychos without being garbled or whispering. Uh-huh. Those are best found in horror comedies. Wow. For people to just have like a conversation between two people. Your brain works in a very satisfying way. That's Thank very, you. It's very interesting to hear how you got there. Well, after much searching, like I was like, ah, I'm going to get a clip from this movie where they and talk about like, this. They're like, it's a vampire. Or, or like, I think we're dealing. Or there'd be so much background noise. Yeah. You know, because it's chaos, because it's like a horror film. Yeah, because by the time a normal person comes to realize that the paranormal is real or something like that, or my gosh, watch Poltergeist. They're either shouting at each other or whispering to each other. <laughs> there's there's not a ton of middle ground. So there, that's how the Burbs made not one but two appearances in our minute long intro. Nice. Yeah. I approve. I also like how we've, over the course of these episodes, ended up touching on several clips that you've used. Why wouldn't we? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I knew you would find that, and I was just sort of teeing, just waiting for you oh, to, man. to stumble upon it. Both instances. The actor, by the way, uh, it's uh, Rick Dukerman. Yeah. Who, He's passed away. He has passed away like, like a year ago. He's so funny in this movie. He's so good. And beat out more established actors. Wow. He was a stand-up comic who was kind of making his bones and bit parts, and already a successful businessman. He had a, like a skateboarding company, I want to say, yeah. which one of like the teenagers. One he wears of, a T-shirt from his it. company. Yeah. yeah, it's like skull skates or something, and it's a skull. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like Rick Moranis was up for the part, wow. and th- that was a name mentioned in an interview, and um, Dave Thomas as well. 
what we got to do is we got to go down to the religious supply store. We got to get ourselves a couple of gallons of holy water. My cousin Jerry's a priest. He can get us a deal. No, no. We got to then we got to go to the market. We got to get ourselves a couple of those big strings. You know, they string that garlic. A couple of big strings of garlic. We got to get ourselves some fresh lamb's blood. He's very high energy and he's very funny. He is. And a, a perfect guy to egg on Tom Hanks's character, who just wants some peace and quiet. <laughs> Very good, Tom Hanks. Who there was, you know, as you see that, like, they managed to fit in Dick Miller and Robert Picardo. Yeah. Other people from the sort of Joe Dante stock company. You're like, where's Kevin McCarthy? Apparently he filmed a cameo. He filmed a cameo that served a subplot that Tom Hanks had actually been fired. Mm. And that's what he's doing at home. Whoa, that does change things. It does. I prefer the unspoken interpretation that he was overworked. Mm. That he got himself all worked up in the workplace and now he's supposed to relax. That this was sort of like a forced vacation. A sabbatical. Exactly. Yeah. I feel that uh, at whatever job he was at, and they, they don't really say. It makes me think about, I watched an interview with Joe Dante from like 2013 where he was being interviewed. I guess there was a screening and it's mm-hmm. someone's camera phone. You might have found it too. I found two versions of it. But at any rate, he mentions the fact that the film is really like not a story film at the end of the day. It's more about characters, which I sure. think you pointing out that like it's kind of nebulous exactly why he's home. Like potentially you could read it that he had to be sent, whatever. But it's really just a series of things that happen and Sure, his character definitely goes through, like, a thing, culminating in, really, just... A great freakout. A great freakout. Yes. A great Tom Hanks freakout. For the most part, it's just a bunch of scenes. culminated with... uh, Let me pull back just a little bit here. It was written and considered script-locked before production, thank goodness, because then a writer's strike happened. Mm -hmm. Now, Joe Dante says, like, well, what I did was I hired the, uh, the writer to play a cop in, like, one scene, so he'd be on set. And he was. And it was for the ending, which needed the most work, because they had alternate endings. And as great a story as that is, the writer is on the DVD commentary for its British release, because Europe has embraced the Burbs even more than America has. Interesting. Yes. And the writer says, well, he was there a lot as producer. Mm. So any writing on the sly, he could have, I mean, not like sit down at your typewriter, but just been like, well, what if we try like this? That kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, as a producer might Mm -hmm. during the writer's strike of 88. So to help with their predicament of, you know, they couldn't call in a polished guy. But what they could do was allow the actors to improvise quite a bit. And the best way to facilitate that is to film in order. Hmm. So by and large, the movie was filmed in order. So interesting. Got the best lawn on the block. And you know why? Because he trains his dog to crap in my yard. Great improvisations from the main cast, mm-hmm. including Bruce Dern, mm-hmm. who... He's fantastic. He's fantastic, and I never think of as a funny person. But he's so funny. He's he just is. so good. How did you get in there? A soldier's way saves the day. He plays, we should say, he's... Uh, rum, hold on. Rumsfeld? Rumsfield. Rumsfield. And he's, he's ex-military, Rums- did we say? Lieutenant Mark Rumsfield. Uh-huh. Wendy Shaw plays his, his wife, his younger, hotter wife. And the union never seemed unusual to me, and I finally figured out why. It's the union that we've all seen before. You mean the fact that, that 
this semi-crazed ex-military guy has this like blonde bombshell yep. wife. Uh-huh. How, how many times has G.I. Joe married Barbie? Mm-hmm. In homes across America. Wow. Good point. It's G.I. Joe and Barbie. Good point. She is Wendy Shaw, who I now think that, like, I'd like to watch this movie six times, each time just watching one of the main characters, so I don't miss anything from them. Right. Which lends credence to Joe Dante's statement that it's really a character piece. Mm -hmm. Like, these characters are all so unique and interesting and fun. They're all always doing something and reacting, and there's plenty to react to. Yes. Wendy Shaw, no exception. And do you watch uh, American Dad? I've seen an episode or two. The wife in American Dad, that's her. Oh, cool. And she was cast in that voice part because Seth MacFarlane is a big fan of the Burbs, and... When it comes to cast, well, who's going to be the wife of the super patriotic American dad? As, you know, in the opening credits, they go out and he, like, raises the flagpole and, like, like, salutes. I can't think of anyone And there's his hot blonde wife next to him? Yeah. That's it. I offered him a fig, Francine. Is that true, Stan? Did he offer you a fig? Because that sounds like the opposite of selfish. That sounds nutritious. There it is. That's, uh, and she's so really we're... fantastic. She's very, very funny. She is. It's not easy to play a sort of kind of flighty kind of at first beautiful lady. You Which think... she's not totally. She's not one dimensional. But at first, you think that's all she's there for, right? And then comes the great scene where Carrie Fisher and Wendy Shaw take the reins from these juvenile men. Who were just poking around, staring. Gotten stung by bees. Practically playing ding-dong ditch, you know, like daring each other to go. wild, wild theories. And they're like, all right, let's just march over there and introduce ourselves. Of course, it takes the women, the wives, to be like, this is ridiculous. So they go over with like the plate of brownies with the two husbands in tow. Not Art. Art's busy sneaking around the back on his own thing because his wife's out of town and he's Mm -hmm. just running around unchecked. Mm Mm-hmm. So far, we'd seen Courtney Gaines. Mm-hmm. Courtney Gaines, Malachi from Children of That's the Corn. That's what I, when he showed up on screen in this movie, I was like, why do I know him? And that was it, Children of the Corn. He's such an odd, interesting looking yeah. person. And he really turns it up for this. He this is, is sort of so like great in this. Disheveled Germanic kook. They've got some like Cletus teeth in him. He is just wild haired and wild eyed. And then they basically like barge in on him. They're like, is your mother home? And, and there's there's no mother, right past him. but his uncle is there, played by Brother Theodore. I didn't really look this guy up. Is his name really Brother? No. That's a stage name. Holocaust survivor. Whoa. Who turned his experiences into what's been described as performance art during the, like, the beatnik days. As he'd be like a very just sort of dour character. I hear um, in real life he was uh, much more of a sweetheart. Later... Uh, picked up and embraced by Letterman, who would have him on to just, like, just be very standoffish to Letterman himself, but then kind of lose himself in some kind of, like, reverie. That's so fun. What an interesting life Uh, and career. It's on YouTube. So what I thought was a character created for the Burbs was kind of already his stage persona, his established persona of just, like... It just made sense to put him in this role. What is that, Slavic? No. Uh Uh-huh. It's like, who is it? It's the fat one. <laughs> that, that, that sort of delivery, like, yeah. you know. What kind of doctor is your brother anyway? Why don't you ask him yourself, you know? Yeah. Just very clipped, angry. Clipped, angry. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. So he'd already been doing that for years. And now he's doing it for the burbs. 
So then we get up to him, and during the scene of, like, sardines and pretzels. I gotta pause you there. Yeah. Regarding that, if you've listened to Boys and Ghouls, you know that occasionally Marshall will bring a themed treat to the table mm-hmm. for when we're recording. He's made me, what did you make me of out of the Vincent Price cookbook? Basically deviled eggs. Yeah. It was strange and interesting. With diamonds of ham as a garnish. That's right. So you'll bring me a thing or two to eat that's themed. Sometimes it's heart-shaped pizza. Sometimes it's Vincent Price deviled eggs. I was watching the Burbs, and in this scene where they're, like, trying to be hospitable and bring out pretzels and sardines, they've just rolled back the top of the sardine can and are passing it around, and Carrie Fisher encourages Tom Hanks. She's like, "Mm -hmm." nudging him visually, like, hey, dude. Well, they're just talking about the weather. Right. She's like, don't be rude. Eat the thing. And so he does... I thought, oh, dear God, please don't let Marshall bring (laughs) sardines and pretzels and make me eat it because I'm not eating it. And I thank you kindly for not doing that. So it would have made sense. I probably would have done would be like Swedish fish and pretzels. That would have been delightful. I would have eaten that. A little slow on that one. Yeah. Sardine. I'm trying to cut back. So then we, we know there's three of them there's the courtney Gaines character he's a young guy red hair brother theodore teeth. so brother now we've theodore, gone like weird man to weirder and uh-huh. you're like well there's another one in the basement he's gonna be the weirdest and we know there's three because we've seen them digging in their backyard yes. just as part of their strange behavior and as he's coming up from the basement the shadow of the doctor starts coming up out of the basement and it's henry gibson neat with a a tie. For a guy who never goes out, he certainly dresses up. Mm-hmm. With like his three-piece suit and his tie and his perfect hair. And he's like, oh, we have guests. By the way, I'm sure I've seen him in a ton of stuff. But because I know he's had a long and storied mm-hmm. career. But for me, I was like, what's the thing I've seen? Magnolia. That's what I know. Certainly Magnolia. A really heartbreaking, kind of a, an odd yes. character. Nashville. The movie? From Yeah. I've only seen that once. Who was he... Uh, the, the movie actually opens on him mm. and kind of ends on him also. And he, he's like a real jerk country that singer. I a really strange, strange film. But at the end, he's like been shot in the arm. Mm. And what you know about him, you think he'd be like, oh, my arm, get me out of here. Oh, Lord. You know, because he's just been a prima donna for like yeah. two hours. Yeah. But instead, he's like shot in the arm and he's like, keep singing, keep singing. Don't let them think they've got us beat. Oh, that's right. Oh, and he, he, he's just like, he's trying to find someone to take the microphone from him. And then like the woman does and she like leads everyone in song. And right. it's kind of like not a happy ending, but a hopeful ending. And he just walks away with his arm bleeding. Yeah. And you're like, oh, guess you never know. Yeah. About people, which is about as good a message as you can get. Sure. But that was not my introduction to Henry Gibson. I did not go Nashville, then Burbs. Mm-hmm. The Burbs was probably my introduction to him i love that he you know he comes up the stairs and he makes his pleasantries and he reaches out to shake tom hanks hand and tom hanks pulls away his hand and it's covered in bright red liquid looks like blood just like blood cut to sorry about the paint that's right so he's been painting and one of my favorite things is bruce stern's character who can't figure out how to put the paint, which side is up on the painting. He keeps turning it around. Everyone's having a conversation. They've lit candles because it would be romantic for the ladies. And it's just this blazing inferno of candles that is the most comically dangerous looking 
collection of candles. Especially in that house. Everything's just set to burn. Yes, and the setup for it, though, is like, it'll be romantic for the ladies, and then, which is this ridiculous, so many moments of hilarity. But then, yeah, Bruce Stern's character is just baffled by this weird painting, and he can't, and, and he, which way is up? And I couldn't stop laughing. He really brought it. And just when he's trying to interrogate Courtney Gaines. Yeah, now that they're inside the house, he's like yeah. not as scared anymore. He's, he's like, like putting the squeeze on him. Hey, that's a pretty girl. It's a girlfriend? He's like, no, it, it came with the frame. Came with the frame. <laughs> just getting in his face. Yeah, and, and at this point, we haven't mentioned that Walter, their neighbor, has quote unquote disappeared. Yeah. And they think oh, these when, guys when they, had they something his to dog, do with it. Queenie, who you may have seen in another film, as Precious. <gasps> no! Poo-lee-poo. Stop. That's yeah. the same dog? Same dog. Wow. That, that, that dog got around. 88. And then, like, Sounds of the Lambs was like 90, Nine, 91. Uh-huh. Yeah. Don't you hurt my dog. Right? Wow. Precious. My brain is blown. That's incredible. Of all the cameos and, and inside... And and Joe Dante will really fill the frame with uh, inside stuff. Well, that's something we haven't really discussed, and I just think it's worth mentioning how just hyper-stylized this movie is visually, mm-hmm. because it's Joe Dante. But I yeah. think maybe that's something that it, some people can't wrap their minds around when it comes to this movie, but I absolutely loved it. I thought it was so fun. from Jump, which is before they even get to the street, which is all on the, the Universal Studios backlot. And so it, that has its own stylized sort of artificial vibe to it. Just like in Gremlins, if you're going to have something as outrageous as Gremlins, you have to put them in a little fakey environment so yeah. they'll play. Same with the burbs. But before even getting there, you get the Universal logo, yep. and then they just zoom in into the, the planet Earth, into the world. And closer and closer, and then it gets so close you can like pick out like streets and cars moving. And lights. And then on to, and you can kind of see where they transition. And it was a fairly seamless transition. Yeah. Just like the colors just kind of shifted. Yeah. And into, I forget the name of the street that they use, but Colonial Street, mm-hmm. as it's called on or the back Or Wisteria Lane. For many years, Wisteria Lane. it's now been known because it, it's, it's back to Colonial. Right. Good. Now that uh, Desperate Housewives is done. classic, yeah. Sorry, boys. My husband's not feeling well. He has to stay in his room. Ooh, he's bad. Come on. Please, Carol, let him come out. Come on. He can't come out until he resembles the man that I married. Carrie Fisher. Oh, yeah. For a lot of us, I think that was our first look at her post-Star Wars. Hmm. I know it had been a few years, but she'd done like Hannah and her sisters. And guys, you know, kids aren't going to rush out and watch that. No. She'd done... When was When Harry Met Sally? Same year. Yeah, because she looks... I was thinking about that in this movie. I was like, oh, because that's, that's a kind movie of era. I've seen a lot. And yeah. while um, I did find my way to that movie eventually, I wasn't watching it when it first came out. No. So along with a lot of other, let's just say guys my age, this was our first time seeing a non-Princess Leia Carrie Fisher. So there was a period of adjustment. That's the moment when, when you know, she stopped being a princess and she became like, you know, a woman. Yes, Carrie Fisher. Who... Good at improvising and good at working off of Tom Hanks. So how old would the two of them have been at this point? She was 19 years old in 76. Right. That's when she filmed Star Wars. Okay. So like 31. That's crazy to me because maybe it's the haircut and the time and the clothes, but she looks so much older. Like that haircut does not do her favors. They they were making her a mom. 
Yeah. But to that point, I'm reminded of the fact that Tom Hanks apparently was a little hesitant about yeah. playing a dad. This is the first time he played he'd a dad. He made a career as the limbs akimbo single guy out looking for love, finding it in a mermaid mm -hmm. and other such movies. Had never played someone settled down before. Right. Oh, I'm only trying to take a nap. I'm only laying here with my eyes closed trying to get some goddamn sleep. Also, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Yes, Henry, yes. Henry Gibson, we spoke about. <laughs> yes, I recall. Just mere moments ago. Yeah. I was looking him up because I was, as I said, I was like, what do I know him from? Oh, Magnolia. You know what else I know him from? Inner space. Sure. I mean, I, I saw that as a kid as well. But here's the important one. Laughing. He was the voice of Wilbur the pig in Charlotte's Web. Yeah, he does have a very gentle voice. I can talk. I can talk. I also noticed a detail in the film, just again pointing out how stylized everything is and how kind of bonkers and kooky it ultimately is. There's a scene inside Tom Hanks's house where you see a portrait on the wall of his family. Uh -huh. It's he and his wife and his kid, but like in the picture, he's kind of separate from them. He's like off to the side, and then his uh -huh. wife and his kid are kind of. They're not completely separated. They're like just in a, a little, little, grouping, little bit of space. but he's he's off to the side. It's like he's doomed to just be alone because of whatever. Well, later later during the said. dream sequence, when the uh, the chainsaw comes through the wall, does it chop him off from the rest of his family? I think it does. Like there are several, wheels within wheels. Several references to that. You know, did you ever see the movie The Sentinel, Mister Peterson? It's about the old guy who owns the apartment, which is kind of like the uh, gateway to hell. No, I, I didn't see that. They talk about the Sentinel for just a little Corey bit. Corey Feldman referenced it. Corey, they, I was like, whoa, I just watched that movie. You have. I have seen the Sentinel, and I've, it was incredible. What, and what, I, what brought you to the Sentinel? It was recommended on one of the cinema podcasts that I listened to. It sounded so interesting that I just immediately bumped it to the top of my list and I watched it. And it is, I can't believe I've not heard more about this movie. It's great. I can't recommend it enough. I think I watched it because it was talked about in the burbs. They didn't do anything to us. They didn't do anything to us. All right, so they're different. So they keep to themselves. Can you blame them? They live next door to people who break into their house and burn it down while they're gone for the day. The Burbs had a pretty good ending. You know, things come to a head. The house gets blown up because they go into it to look for Walter's body and, like, hit a gas main. They dig all the way to the gas main. The, yeah. Yeah. And the whole house blows up. And so for a while, you feel really bad for the Klopeks, who were, like, gone for the They're day. Like these poor people and who, like, yeah, they look weird, and they don't really mow their lawn, but, like, damn, like, let them live their lives. What have they done? All their stuff just got torched. Right. Walter, did you say Walter comes back home? So, like, they know he's... Not dead? That's the next part. Yeah. Turns out the thing that they were really being driven by, the disappearance of Walter, who they didn't even really like in the first place. And the reappearance of his wig and some mail of his at the Klopex house. Turns yeah. out he had, like, heart palpitations, had to go to the hospital. He's been in the hospital. The Klopex were being nice neighbors and picking up his mail for him and accidentally picked up his toupee. Yeah, In exactly. the magazines. Yeah. It's all got a tidy explanation. Everything's fine. So, big speech out of Tom Hanks, and then... About how we're the weird ones. Yeah, we're, we're the, weird the ones. ones. Yeah. Wonderfully culminated with him. He lays down the gurney, he's like, take me to the hospital, and then he gets up, picks up the whole gurney. Throws it into the back of the ambulance and jumps and on then, it. Yeah, he just flops on it's it. It's classic. 
it's incredible to me how one human being can be Tom Hanks. And you'd never seen that scene before like this. Never. I hadn't seen a clip of it. It was a full on surprise. And it sent me down a rabbit hole of watching interviews and footage of Tom Hanks for like an hour because I was like, oh, my God, he is really just I knew this, but such a treasure. And like he's just always been incredible. And then Carrie Fisher, of course, comes to the back of the ambulance. She's like, honey. Yeah. (laughs) I'll just follow along after the ambulance, okay? I'll find out what hospital they're taking you to. He's like, okay. She's like, do you need anything? He's like, nope, I'm good. (laughs) So funny. Yeah. You may have fooled the others, Mr. Peterson, but you don't fool me. Uh, If I fooled the others? But you don't fool me. I don't? No, you don't. Then, you know, the Dr. Kolopek is in the ambulance with him. He's like, you must have looked in my furnace. Oh, my god! And seen the skull. It's like, no, not so much. And he's he, got, like, a syringe full of, like, some nebulous green poison that he's about to inject him with. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God, they were sick weirdos. And Courtney Gaines is driving the ambulance, and he talked about how he murdered the family that lived there before so they could take their house. I offered to buy it. But you know how old people are. It turns out, like, the person who did it first, and possibly best, Jerry Lewis has, like, a rolling out of control on a hospital gurney (laughs) gag. (laughs) Repeated now in the burbs as both Hanks and Henry Gibson roll to the Klopex car. The trunk comes up. It's full of skeletons. They go away. Tom Hanks does not go to jail. You get some nice moments with all the characters. You know, Art, your wife's home, and your house is on fire. (laughs) And what a cool twist, because you really start getting the impression, even before you find out that there's no Walter in the basement, you really are getting the feeling, you're like, oh my god, these people are just going to turn out to be totally normal people that they're, like, really suspicious of. So then when they, when there's a twist again that, like, no, they really were serial murderers with bunches of skulls in their trunk, it's such a nice upending of those expectations. Now, they also shot it where it was the two garbage men in the trunk. yes. And some cheerleader? There's another one where it was cheerleaders in the trunk. I think just because that's like, well, if you're going to murder somebody. That's a symbol of like perfect, like suburban whatever. Let's say. Because nurses were no longer the, you know, it used to be like, oh yeah, man, I bet that guy's just going to snap and kill a bunch of nurses. That used to be like the go-to. Interesting. And then I think with slasher films, it just became cheerleaders. Or sorority sisters. Yeah, sorority (laughs) girls. Girls who are in groups and dress alike. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> really. Let's say. First to go. Hmm. But even before that, just on paper, back when this film was called Bay Window, which is a title I think it kept for a while, like through production. Really? I'm told. Joe Dante in this interview I keep referencing, he was like, people think that I was trying to parody Rear Window. I wasn't. Maybe not, but I think the writer was. It comes through. Which, by the way, I also just watched Rear Window in the last, like, six months. I've watched a lot of movies this year. Make sure you uh, take time to uh, digest them. I am. Um, my best. <laughs> Look at us. We're spending all this time talking about two of them. Exactly. Where are you going? It's just starting to get good. I'm going away for a while, Reggie. Wish you to keep an eye on the neighborhood for me. You betcha, Mr. Peterson. No problem. On paper, before Tom Hanks had even been cast, and I think writers can be more careless with their characters, because at that point, it's not a collaborative medium. You know, it's just one guy writing a movie. Mm -hmm. 
and you haven't had the time to like get to know the characters and have them get fleshed out by a, another person who comes in and acts your character. So it's pretty easy to just slap on an ending where he gets in the ambulance and it turns out the Clopex are in it and the ambulance drives away, implying he dies. That would have made a good ending for Tales from the Crypt mm -hmm. or any kind of episodic or anthological series. But for a two-hour movie where we got to really know this guy and follow this guy, to just have a uh, sucks to be you kind of ending really wouldn't have Well, the studio was like, you can't kill Tom Hanks. And then they put down the edict, so they never even went there. I'm yeah. sure even if they shot it, they would have still reshot it. Yeah. Then there's a version that you can find uh, actually on the DVD, on the American DVD, which is similar, but Henry Gibson gives a big speech about how living in the suburbs is enough to make it crack. He's like, if you paint your house the wrong color or you don't take care of your lawn or you sacrifice a couple of people, <laughs> you know, everyone starts looking at you weird. Yeah. And in that version, all the characters kind of got their own button, but little different buttons than before. Art just wants to hang out with everybody, and no one wants to hang out with him. Rumsfeld and his wife just are going off to do it. Yeah, presumably, uh, for sure. And Ricky, which is Corey Feldman, who served mostly as, like, narrator totally. the for chorus, a lot of it. The Greek chorus. The Greek chorus. He enjoys, he watches the neighborhood like it's television. Originally, he was just, like, walking in the middle of the street with a piece of pizza in his hand, possibly having coined the phrase pizza dude. <laughs> pizza dude. Going like, I love this neighborhood. He got a reshoot to where now he's like medium close up to the camera going, I love this neighborhood. It's a great moment. They pull out much like they'd done before, but they start out a little further mm. because they couldn't just reuse the shot, but backwards because they would have had to show like a house on fire and yeah. emergency vehicles. Yeah. But still, it was like, and it's the earth. You know, it's been a universal picture. It prepared me for Rear Window, I'd have to say, even if they went away from that, mm -hmm. uh, the Bay Window to Rear Window connection. A few years later, when I was introduced to Rear Window, I just took to it yep. immediately, and I think that I, I had been primed by the burbs. Also... Would be a good double feature. It would. <laughs> and if you want to show a little something beforehand, the Twilight Zone episode, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Ooh, that's a chilling ending there. That all takes place on one street, and all the neighbors start to distrust each other a little bit, then a little more. Then a little more, then, oh my gosh, we're the monsters on Maple Street. Isn't that the one where they pull back and the aliens are in their ship and they're like, all you got to do is they just knock out their power and they're like, yeah. and they'll take care of themselves. We don't have yeah. to do anything. And there are Maple Streets all over this world. Ha 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 for, like, good horror suspense yet to come. Sure. Um, in, in one's viewing history. In, mm -hmm. in, in one's viewing experiences. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, you, however, have just seen it. Yep. As an adult. Yep. How about Brain Scan? Have you gone into anything? Did it prep you for Lawnmower Man? You know what? I think more than the actual, like, meat and potatoes of, like, the tech stuff, uh -huh. 
I think it just kind of bent my brain in a way of like kind of a you can do this kind of I think I know it's a cheap twist at the end but that twist really I thought was really cool mm. and I was like whoa you can do that really happened like you can do that in a movie All right, Kat, I'm glad I watched Brain Scan. I'm so glad you watched Brain Scan. I couldn't be more happy that I watched The Burbs. One, because it gave me a really fun movie-watching experience. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, because it gave me a little insight into the mind and heart of one Marshall Hicks. Get to know it, people! <laughs> it was really great. I definitely would and have recommended it to other people who I know haven't seen it. Like in the week since you've seen it? Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Uh, I'd have to find a special kind of person before I start recommending Brain Scan to them. Yeah, I will say, the coworker I mentioned before, I mentioned Brain Scan to a coworker referencing like what you and I were doing here, and she's the type of person who I knew would be interested in some offbeat thing. She was like, I've never heard of this, and immediately Googled it, and then literally that night went home and watched it with her husband and came to work the next day. And she was like, we watched Brain Scan. And I was like, what? And we got to talk about it. So, yes, when it's the right person, it can really be kind of a treat to share. Maybe it's gonna, it'll find a second life as like a, a campy destination for lovers of camp. Sure. And also just people who appreciate like a certain End of that era weird of horror 90s. that was like... Yeah, and, like, that kind of, like, post-80s pre-scream horror that, like, there were a lot of clunkers, but, like, there were a lot of movies that stuck with me, like Dr. Giggles, which we've talked about on this podcast, mm -hmm. and Brain Scan, that have a certain charm and certain remarkable quality to them, even if they're not perfect. You know, Brain Scan has Frank Langella just killing it, being so great. Um, mm -hmm. Larry Drake in Dr. Giggles. Like, it's not a perfect film, but it's got this, like, early 90s aesthetic that just, it's because of when it hit me, that it's just like going home again. Sure. It's an aesthetic that I know it when I see it, but if someone asked me to like parody it, I wouldn't know where to begin. No idea. But I think that's the kind of thing that, well, time solves, one, and people who legitimately enjoy it will be those able to best parody it. Sure. If society calls for a 90s horror parody, which is, it's coming. Yeah. We're still having our fun with the 80s. I think. Yeah. But the shift is coming. There's a little bit of it starting, but I think you're oh, right. Good. I think it'll be another five, ten years before we really dip into I've been waiting the for the late 90s nostalgia. to really get theirs. Yes. Right, oh, we, my God. That'll be a good time. We left a little post-it note over there. It says plug. Yes. You wanted to plug not something of yours or mine, but rather something of a friend's? Yes. Do so it. my friend, who is one of the funniest most talented people I know started a podcast and it's called Done Disappeared and it is a take on the true crime podcast genre. I think that's all I'm going to say. If you are listening and you listen to a lot of true crime podcasts like Up and Vanished, what is it everyone called? Like In the Dark. Um, You're the one to ask. <laughs> Sword and Scale, My Favorite Murder, like podcasts that explore the world of true crime true crime garage you will appreciate it has now become its own genre and therefore time to be parodied you could say that 
Okay. It is a very digestible, like, around 10 minutes an episode, little snack bite of a podcast. But it is so well done and so perfect in what it's trying to do. And it's gaining some traction right now. And I, you, you're going to want to get in on this now because it's so funny. It's and so fun. You're receiving... No money to be saying Absolutely this. none. This is no, right from I'm your just heart. Purely a fan of this podcast because he's a fan of these true crime podcasts, as am I. He mm. knows them really well. And he just sort of started working on it. And um, man, I swear the episodes just keep getting better. They're so funny. So right. you should really check out Done Disappeared. Go subscribe. Go listen to the first episode. Thank me later. And folks, if you need a little more Cat and Marshall in your life uh, in between episodes... Then uh, check out our Facebook page, uh, where we put up some fun stuff. Our Instagram as well, Boys and Ghouls at Instagram. Or is it Boys and Ghouls Podcast? It's Boys and Ghouls Podcast. Who got Boys and Ghouls? Nobody. I just chose Boys and Ghouls Podcast. Because it tells you in the title of the handle that it's a podcast. All right. Well, I was just super excited when I locked down Boys and Ghouls at Twitter. Mm Mm-hmm. Check us out there, Tumblr, Pinterest. When we find uh, fun things, we like to share it. Mm-hmm. And keep in touch if you want to uh, contact us at boysandghouls at gmail. And, uh, Kat, any, anything you want to add? Just that I think everyone should probably beware the moon. Amen. Decay.